Hi, Nancy. Hi, Shane. How's it going? It's going. How are you? (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) So this is an odd question because uh, we're obviously not lost a lot right now. We're all in our homes, very well trodden paths. I've Um, I've never known where I was more. Yes. But have you actually ever been lost, like really lost, like, like, you know, lost? That's a good question. I, I genuinely have a good sense of direction, or at least I think I do, but I have. So uh, every summer, um, you've probably heard this on previous episodes, but I teach this field course usually, and it's for undergraduates, and we go out and do herpetology and disease ecology and all sorts of things. But probably my second year teaching it, so very new, I was out with the class, and we were in a... Um, in kind of like a gully by a stream looking for salamanders because basically to find salamanders, you just flip rocks and they're there. And we walked down this stream, this creek, and we got to a point where I said, all right, everyone, that's probably enough. You can all turn around and go back. I'll meet you back there. And I turned around with them and started walking. And about 20 minutes later, I realized I hadn't seen anyone and I should be back to where we were all meeting. And probably 20 minutes after that, I realized I had no idea where the heck I was. Like, absolutely no idea. And thank God we were in cell phone range Ah. because I had to pull my phone out in the middle of this forest and look on Google Maps, find my little dot, and then find a clearing. I walked to this clearing. All the while, I'm getting these frantic texts from my teaching assistant. Like, oh my God, Shane, where are you? The students are worried. I'm worried, whatever. I did get back to them. Um, as I approached the group, I heard a lot of snickering and, uh, some under the breath, uh, making fun of the professor and I swallowed my pride. It was fine. I ended up, it was, it was all good. I was all safe and everything, but this was literally day one of the class. And so for the rest of the the course, which was a few weeks, I never quite, uh, I never quite was able to live that down. Ah, that's funny. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, but Shane, there was a reason why I asked you about being lost. It wasn't just random. Just to make fun of me. Well, that is always good. Right, right. Yeah, we are talking about direction today. And uh, to talk more about this and explain what we're going to be hearing about, we want to bring in our producer, Janessa. Hi, Janessa. Hi, you two. So what do you got for us? Yeah, so at fall meeting last year, I went to a talk that was probably the strangest talk I've ever been to at a conference. It It was on magnetism in organisms. So there's been a long discussion of whether animals use magnetic receptors in our brain to give us a sense of direction. Like birds and stuff. Yeah, like birds. Um, Yeah, you know, there's been papers on this for pigeons and bacteria. Uh, But also recently there's been a look into humans and whether we have this in our brains too. So Mm -hmm. the talk was by a paleomagnetism researcher named Stu Gilder. He's at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. And Stu was presenting results on a study from 2019. Him and his team looked into this question of human brains, and they actually dissected seven human brains yeah. to see their magnetic remnants. Hmm. I don't... What, to, what, wait, what were they looking for, though? Like, what to dissecting them for what? 
Well, yeah. So the reason they're looking at this is knowing if humans have some kind of um, way of sensing direction or way of how our brains signal um, that could really tell us more about, you know, human biology. And at this point, the research is really early days. What scientists are looking for is, do humans have this magnetic mineral called magnetite in our brains? Uh, and where is it and what could that mean? My name is Stuart Gilder. I'm a professor of geophysics at Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. I do all kinds of different things, but mostly everything I do is related to magnetism, whether it's related to the present day Earth's magnetic field or the Earth's magnetic field in the past or anything that has magnetic recorders in it, including biologic tissue. And one day, my neighbor came into my office, and my neighbor is a retired medical doctor, and he wanted to see our lab, and I made an offhanded comment that one of the new machines we were developing would be perfect to measure human brain samples. And his eyes got really big, and he left, and the next thing I know is he wrote uh, a letter for me that he gave to the head of neuroanatomy at my university. My university has a famous medical school, and that's where he studied several years ago. And he wrote this nice letter to the head. And the next thing I knew, I had a very nice response from, uh, his name is Christoph Schmitz. And saying that, yeah, we have all these brain samples and you can have them all to study. The idea was that they have a collection of human brains that were in formaldehyde uh, since the early 1990s. The patients who had died and I guess left their, their body parts for research purposes. And I'm interested in that because if it is true that they can actually detect the Earth's magnetic field for navigation. And if we can understand why, then it was my thought that we could actually build uh, the better rock magnetometers. So at this point, Stu is thinking that he can help answer a biological question. Do humans have magnetite in our brain? As well as answer his own curiosities as a geophysicist. Now, magnetite has been found in other animals. Several people believe that nearly all species, uh, you know, from, from nearly all phyla, so several species of nearly all phyla, use the magnetic field for some reason. And most people think that they use it for, uh, like this magnetoreception is used for orientation to guide them. And... That's, that's the general thought. And so birds, tortoises, bats, lobsters, uh, fish, all, all kinds of different things. Bees are, are thought to have these magnetoreceptors, and we, we don't know why. The one creature that I would say definitely uses the magnetic field, and I'm 100% convinced of it, 
are these small bacteria called magnetotactic bacteria. And they absolutely have a magnetite in them. They have chains of the single domain magnets. And these chains are aligned perfectly. These are the best swimming magnets in the world. And we don't know why they are, but we do know that, that they do it. And again, the humans, humans have the same kind of magnetite as these magnetotactic bacteria. I read some papers on the human brain, and most studies uh, that were done previously uh, up to, to the certain date found that there was magnetite in the brain. Nobody had, had really looked at the entire human brain. <laughs> So we took one of these whole human brains and we chopped it up into 120 pieces of about large cube size. And this is a, an extremely important point because the magnetization of materials scales as, with size. And so the bigger the piece you have the more likely you'll have something that's measurable. So our philosophy was we wanted to work with very, very large samples, the largest samples we could. These are about inch size cubes or two, two and a half centimeters on a, on a side cubes. And we systematically dissected the brain. So along by, by, dissecting it, it's separating it into what's called the cerebral cortex, which is the big part of the brain, and the cerebellum, which is the, the small part of the brain, and also the brainstem. And we brought those pieces to one of our labs. And this particular lab is in the middle of a forest. It's a beautiful place. This forest was given by... King Maximilian in 1806, I believe, to my university. And we have what's called a magnetically shielded room that shields out kind of the Earth's magnetic field and variations of that field. And we built kind of a clean lab for it so there wouldn't be any dust or, or potential sources of, of magnetic contamination. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, as an Earth scientist, what it was like to conduct this lab work. I mean, you're <laughs> used to rock samples, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not very squeamish. And, and you know, the brain samples, because they've been in formaldehyde, you know, for so many years that, that they, you know, it's kind of like putty. You know, yeah, they have a, a, a strange texture, but, you know, they kind of look like if you're French and you eat, you know, duck liver is called foie gras. And, I, you know, I lived in France a long time, and, and, and so it looks a lot like foie gras to me, the brain uh, tissues. And, 
and so I, I'm I'm able to kind of separate that out. Foie gras? I actually don't think I've ever had foie gras. Maybe I don't think so. <laughs> Can you just say foie, foie gras? I can't even say it either. Yeah, look at that. What I want to know is how does he know the texture of it? If he's a chef, if he's a chef, is he chef? Uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, <laughs> no, what's going on, Janessa? Yeah, I mean it's. It is pretty wild. Uh, and I've never had foie gras either. And I can assure you, I never will now. <laughs> well, see, now I'm just fascinated. Well, so so basically, once they have all these brain samples in their special magnetically shielded lab, um, they zap the brain samples with a super strong magnetic field. Mm. And this magnetic field, I mean, they are not messing around here. This is a field that's um, a million times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. So a million times. That, yeah. What would happen if that got out of their specially shielded room? <laughs> I mean, like every stuff, magnet like, in the world. Brain. I have no. I actually don't know that much about. Oh, it would all point. It would all point would to every there, right? magnet in the like world. That's... Like be like attracted to it, and I don't know. This sounds like a great geo disaster movie <laughs> that needs to star the rock. <laughs> All right, our uh, our digression is going to turn into a movie, but no, we'll, we'll let you get back to it. Well, okay, yeah. So it, assuming that nothing, you know, diabolical happens, um, they've now zapped the brains with this really strong magnetic field. And then the team compares how magnetic those tissues are after the strong field was applied to them. That's called remnant magnetization. And basically on their first try, they found something really interesting. And I thought it would never work. And I thought we would just measure noise. And it turned out uh, most pieces acquired a remnant, a remnant magnetization, a permanent uh, magnetization that was much stronger after we had exposed it to a magnetic field. And that was proof that there was magnetic material in those pieces. It was hard for me to believe, but. I wrote a report for the doctors and, you know, you're the first person that's ever done this and you don't really know what you're looking for or where you're looking for it. I did some basic statistics on the anatomical positions uh, so the cerebral cortex and, and cerebellum and right and left and all that kind of thing. And immediately the thing that stuck out most was that the cerebellum, so the, the small part of the brain, uh, the ancient part of the brain, more ancient part of the brain, was, was two or three times more magnetic on average than the cerebral cortex. to know if he was seeing a real signal or a fluke. So with permission, they decide to dissect six more brains, coming to seven in total. Like the first brain, these have been preserved in formaldehyde since the 90s, when relatives and guardians of the deceased donated their bodies to science. Because of patient confidentiality, of course, we don't know much about these men and women, other than that they ranged from their mid-50s to their late 80s when they died, 
uh, and they're from Germany. So Stu and his team repeated the same lab process before, sorting, cutting, slicing, and then putting these samples into Stu's rock machine. When the data comes in, they find the exact same pattern. Each person's brain had magnetic remnants, and the remnants was stronger in certain parts of the brain than other parts of the brain. Stu didn't really know what to make of this, because this was the first time anyone had ever systematically mapped this. What was amazing was that they all gave us the same pattern. So seven out of seven brains, regardless of, of male or female, or your, your, you know, the sex of the individual, and regardless of age of the individuals, and they all gave us the exact same pattern where the cerebellum was always really significantly more magnetic than the, the cerebral cortex. For those of us not up on our brain anatomy, um, here's a quick <laughs> explanation. So if you put your hand on top of your head, Nancy and Shane, um, you're doing, near, it, doing it right now. Good. So you're near the upper part of your brain uh, right now called the cerebellum. Uh, <laughs> no, cerebrum. Right? Cerebrum. Yes. cerebrum. Thank you. Oh, okay. God. Um, so it's your cerebrum. And this part of the brain has fewer little magnets in it than the lower part of our brain, according to Stu's research. So put your hand on the back of your head now, near your neck. This part of the brain area, that is where your cele- uh, cerebellum is and your brainstem. These are the lower parts. Uh, and they control heart rate, breathing, sort of these like really base functions. And they had more magnetic material than the upper part. And Stu points out that these lower parts are the more ancient kind of parts of our brain. So if you want to know where the magnet magnets are at, just remember. I wonder if you put a magnet up there, what would happen? Let's not find out. <laughs> well, I was actually curious about that too. Uh, and I'll get to that question in a minute. But first I asked Stu, did these findings have anything to do with our sense of direction, how we understand it? Uh, and sorry in advance, Shane, I don't think you're going to be able to blame getting lost on your magnetic receptors. You know, I think most people are, are, are fixated on the orientation question. So most people, when they think of magnetite, they think of compasses. You know, we're humans and we try to relate to our natural environment, the way that, that, that we see things. And, you know, the, the compass and orientation seems like a natural thing. I, I don't think that, that it's for orientation. In all the brains that we sample, and what interests me most, and I hope medical scientists will really think about, is it could be that the magnetite is used as some kind of electromagnetic switching. And this is really my feeling. Uh, I have no proof to support that other than I see this gradient. The one thing that was interesting is one of the patients uh, we knew was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And that patient had the exact same distribution of magnetite. What was interesting with that patient was they had much more magnetite on average throughout the brain. 
And that, again, always makes me wonder, and this is why it's, it's nice for me to do this podcast, because maybe somebody will listen and be inspired by it, is, you know, maybe schizophrenia has to do, if, if this electromagnetic switching is true, and if you have too much magnetite in your brain, maybe you're overstimulated. Maybe this, you know, this operator switch, you know, that's trying to direct these, your all these uh, electrical signals through an electromagnetic switch. Maybe you get overloaded. So, if somebody was listening to that, that that maybe they can get inspired. And and we we need more studies. You know, we we need more of that. Something I wanted to ask is, what about this research is is interesting from the medical side? Like, are they like what are they trying to understand when it comes to magnetic remnants in in human brains? You know, when we applied very strong magnetic fields, we saw that we permanently magnetize these tissues. And if the brain, if if you or I, you know, held something strongly magnetic to our heads, kind of like a a cell phone or telephones have strong magnets in them. The question is, is can we permanently magnetize the brain? And so far, the distance is far enough away from the brain, at least for, for the magnetic fields from phones is probably weak enough that it's not an issue. But I had always wondered, you know, if our findings were true and you put your head next to a very strong magnet, that, you know, you can permanently magnetize your brain. And we should have saw that, you know, at least in one of these seven patients, we didn't see that. And so maybe just by chance, none of these seven people ever came in contact with a strong magnet. Or, you know, maybe it was that that over time, you know, this strong magnetic field that the brain saw got, got randomized. And I think this is another kind of esoteric question that that needs to be answered. Yeah, definitely. That's that's strange to think of an imprint yeah, sort of laughing yeah. on the brain. Yeah. 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 And and so I I could imagine, you know, like 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 tools, you know, are made out of steel. And especially, you know, in the days where where steel kind of rusted, I mean that that can be quite magnetic. And you would imagine that somebody had to have gotten their head close to these big ships are made out of steel. And you'd think that that someone could have permanently <laughs> magnetized themselves. And what would that do? And, you know, this was also a question, you know, here's another esoteric thing. If if pigeons, for example, there, there are some people that really believe that pigeons use the magnetic field. You know, there are these homing pigeons, and I've always wanted to stick these pigeon brains in strong magnetic fields and see whether or not we can make bad homing pigeons into good homing pigeons by aligning all the magnetite in their brains. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to be the person to put a pigeon brain, a live pigeon into a magnet. So. Somebody else can do that. Honestly, I mean, pigeon brains? Why not? I mean, he's doing human brains. I wouldn't really well, put past him. there's so many of them out there, too. So it's probably not going to be like that big of a deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at this point. 
All right. So maybe not pitching brains, but what what is next for him? Well, you know, I was really interested in in what he's doing next, but he couldn't say. Uh, other than he's applied Aww. for a grant, he wouldn't give any specifics. I know. Um, Serious. It is. He did mention that maybe they could test, they could recreate this study for fresh brain samples. What that means is instead of brains that have been sitting in formaldehyde, like the ones he used in this study, um, they would actually take, you know, recently deceased people's brains. Oh, I just, like, every time I hear him, okay. I'm just like, brains. Right. I just. Brains. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So on that note, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Janessa, for bringing us this story. And of course, thanks to Stu for sharing his work with us. This podcast was produced by Janessa. And thanks to our sound engineer, Kayla Suri. We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find it uh, this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thank you.